Hey everyone. This week, instead of our normal show, Ashley and I had the opportunity to interview an incredible person in the football industry. So please enjoy this special episode, and we will return to our regular programming next week. And welcome back to the Undroppables Playbook, a football podcast sponsored by the Undroppables. Um, yeah, well, uh, welcome back. We had another week of football, another crazy week. But I'm your host, Ashley, and this is Michael Duncan. Hey, everyone. And we are so excited to welcome an extremely special guest for today's episode. And many of you have seen him on Game Day Morning NFL Total Access, and with special coverage of the NFL Hall of Fame. And he's currently working as a senior correspondent at NFL Network, where he has been since 2008. And I am so honored to welcome on our guest, Steve Weish. Ashley and Michael, what's up? How's it going, man? How's it going? I'm good. I'm good, man. You know, just came back from our new studios that we have at uh, NFL, NFL Network. It's right next to SoFi Stadium, like, Literally, like, you know, Patrick Mahomes, a little pat-and-go pass next to the stadium. So I've been there all day doing work, and uh, I'm home now. This is the home studio. It's a little different. You know, I've mixed it up. got a bunch of Hall of Fame footballs behind me now, more than usual, but it's all good. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I got to see some of the um, the coverage. You guys were covering the uh, Hall of Fame candidates this morning, and the studio was beautiful. Right, yeah, it was really my first time in there. It's the first time we've done our, our new Hall of Fame show there. So we've only been actually active in studio since the beginning of the season. The Thursday night game was our first broadcast. Um, so yeah, and then today we did that show with the the first candidates, the 122 candidates. Um, so yeah, it was pretty cool to be in there, and you know we got a nice we got a nice nice new house to dirty up mm-hmm. but uh, we have to keep you know providing real good content so people like you and everybody else keep watching. Exactly. I watch all the time. That's how I start most of my mornings is with NFL Network. There we go. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then I actually saw you got to go to the first Monday Night Football game, the Raiders and Ravens game. So that was at the new stadium. You got to, you were in there. It looks awesome in there too. I'm curious. Is it just as cool in person? It's really cool. You know, I was there last year uh, when there were no fans. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the press box is way up at the top of the stadium. And you could actually hear the play calls. You could hear some of the conversation going on. So it holds sound like, I mean, it, it's amazing. So when that was a packed house the other night for that incredible finish, the game against the Ravens on Monday, night, it was just deafening loud. But what's so cool about the stadium is like SoFi and uh, Atlanta's new stadium, you know, the, the Benz and the Cowboy Stadium, the Viking Stadium, they're all built by the same company, the Legends Company, which is owned by Jerry Jones. And so the field, the field aspect of it is kind of the same shape. It's different in Las Vegas. I mean, this is a really unique stadium. It's really dope, really captures the Raiders history in Las Vegas together, um, which really to some degree kind of is a salve on the fact that they left Oakland, which is just like still the perfect environment, the perfect city for the silver and black. Yeah, it seems and I think, like, like the you exact said, type of place that would fit yeah. in that kind of area in Las Vegas and really attract, you know, I think what they're kind of looking for and the vibe and all that kind of stuff of what they're trying to capture in Las Vegas. That's what it seems like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, they're still getting still getting a bunch of Raiders fans from LA and from Oakland and whatnot. But what's really cool about Vegas that you know a lot of folks don't understand until they're there is like the Golden Knights, right? The hockey team. Yeah. They've got this unbelievable fan following. You know, it's almost like college football. Yeah. And that's what the environment was kind of like there, mixed in with some of the regulars from the black hole, you know, and some of the rowdies who come up from L.A. So it was just really, like, great energy going on there. And the fact that the Raiders are playing so well out of the gate, I mean, really added to it. 
That Monday night. Yeah, I'm a hockey fan. Incredible. I'm a hockey fan, and the Golden Knights fans are are crazy. And that stadium is just as crazy too. Like they're the way they open the games, the how beautiful it is inside. It. I could see what you're saying because it's it's very similar to how the Raiders Stadium appeared like on television. But you, I got to see. Um, you did an interview with Darren Waller, and he's one of my favorites. Um, but. That leads me to one of my first questions is, you know, having formed like these close bonds with these players across the league, does that kind of change the way you watch football? Like, I know you have to report on it and and all that kind of stuff, but having these relationships with players, does that change your perspective on watching football? No, not really. I mean, look, I'm not a fan, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the thing. You know, I I grew up in Minneapolis loving the Vikings. Um, So... You know, but that that stopped when I was about, you know, 15, 16, 17 years mm-hmm. old. And so knowing players and knowing coaches and seeing how much movement there is, you know, from team to team and stuff like that, it's like impossible to really like a team, especially a sport you cover and you're so close to. So that's how it changes it. The relationships that we build with the players and coaches and general managers and, and people like that, it may help us understand what that particular team is trying to do a little bit better. So in terms of diagnosis and analysis, it actually, you know, really, it really helps. Like, you know, Darren Waller is a special type of player, but how does his talent really fit into what they do offensively? Um, that's where the relationships and the conversations we have pregame and postgame and the offseason, that's what really helps. And then that's what we really try to convey to the viewers, you know, who are watching, whether on TV, on their phones, whatever. That's the information we try to convey. Yeah, it seems like you guys have always tried to do a really good job of, I mean, it sounds like kind of almost the wrong word, but humanizing them and kind of reminding us that they aren't just, you know, guys in helmets, that they're real people out there. And, you know, every day, you know, their lives, it affects what they're doing out there. And, you know, a game plan is more than just what fantasy points we're getting or whatever. It's about, you know, specific matchups and the game of football as a whole. And, and that's a great point. I mean, and that's what I think really good journalists can do is to humanize, not just a person, but humanize the whole element of what's going on. And, and so football players are the only pro athletes that really have their faces covered up when they're participating. Yep. So that's why it's kind of hard to get to know them a little bit. So that's why when you can say, hey, look, I was talking to Darren Waller before the game or, or Travis Kelsey or, or whomever, and they were saying this, and you can add a little human element to it. Like, okay, I can relate to that, right? That's what a, a viewer can relate to. And then that may, you know, help on, make them understand, you know, how they react to a certain situation or why they perform a certain way. So that's a really good point, Mike. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. Thanks. Um, and that actually kind of brings me into a topic that I wanted to talk about, um, which is uh, something that happened a long time ago, but it's still kind of, I feel like, fresh in people's minds pretty often, especially, I think, with a lot of the stuff going around right now with Deshaun Watson, but that's Mike Vick. And you obviously were in Atlanta when that first happened. Um, I, re- I recently re-listened to an interview you did with Mike Vick on your podcast um, and just talking about like that that human element of it, talking not him about how it affected him football-wise, but the relationship that you two had. And I guess what I'd love to know is just how that affected you when you found out about it or as you started to find out about it, how it affected you knowing that you had this personal relationship with him and um, when you realized that you'd be the primary reporter on that story. Yeah. I mean, and for those who don't know, we're talking about the dog fighting story that happened back in 2007. You got to remember your audience yes. 14 <laughs> years ago, man, a lot yeah. of people were only three or four years old. It's then. crazy to think um, about that. Yeah. But you know, he got caught up fighting dogs. You know, I remember Michael Vick was one of the first $100 million yeah. quarterbacks and he actually went to prison for this. And, you know, for me covering it, I mean, I, I found out years ago, look, I, I've covered some of the bigger stories when I used to cover the NBA and whatnot, that um, the saying is kind of never, you know, you can be surprised, but never be shocked by what, what people do. You just, you just don't know how they grew up, what their environment does, what they, you know, what they themselves could be into. And so, and I'm like, oh man, okay, you could be fighting dogs. And I remember I was working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as a writer then, and so I call up, you know, we ran his little short four inch story when it broke. Like, hey, Michael Vick's cousin was arrested on these drug charges. And the address yeah. he gave when the police went there, they found all of this massive dogfighting operation. And so I call up the, the editors like, what are we going to do here? And they're like, well, we're going to monitor this. I'm like, what do you mean we're going to monitor this? This is a massive deal. 
And if one of the most popular players in the NFL is involved in dogfighting, this is going to be a scandal. And so, you know, in covering Mike, we, you know, remember, we weren't able to get to him. This happened in the summer, yeah. so we weren't able to speak to him. Yeah. But knowing him, I'm kind of like, look, I know where he grew up. This is where my paternal family is from. I know that environment. So maybe he grew up around people where he didn't really think fighting dogs was a bad thing. He knew it was illegal, but he didn't understand it was a bad thing. He understand he had to hide it when he did it. So he did know it was, it was, you know, potentially, you know, something that could lead to imprisonment, but he still did it anyway, even though he's got all this money. So try to understand the person to get back to the humanization part of it. And then everything he's put at risk, because that was the thing that, that people could not believe, like, there's no way he's doing this. Why would he risk all this money? And you have to say, he could absolutely do this because he grew up in an environment, like I just said, where he really didn't think this was that bad of a deal. You know, a lot of people, you know, like to say you take the, 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 the person out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the person or whatever yeah. type of environment you want to say. And then that stuck with him in this type of situation. It was tough. You know, and as you listen to that podcast, you know, I spoke to Mike, like, you know, him and I never had him and I spoken several times since he got out of jail. But we never had the conversation of, man, like, what was it like? knowing I covered you on a day-to-day basis, but now you're having to have me cover the story you were breaking the law with all these sordid details and just horrible things that you were doing to dogs. I said, because it affected me greatly what you did, that it was you who did it. And it was you who was kind of spearheading it and funding it. And just the fact that you saw how many lives it impacted. I mean, this was as big of a story, not just in sports as you could possibly think of, and, you know, he was he was like, yeah, you know, it was horrible. Mike is incredibly candid and honest with himself right now about his misgivings and the relationships that he fractured along the way. Um, and, you know, just to see him grow up and to move on from where he was then is, is an amazing kind of rebirth and, you know, the, the triumph over tragedy type of thing. I mean, as an Eagles fan, like I remember when right. Andy brought him in, you know, I, I mean, that was his first gig after getting out of jail and. I was torn. I mean, I love dogs. I have a dog and my family, all my friends. It was something that, again, was just brought to the forefront in this area. And everyone is obviously, you know, furious at Andy Reid, who, you know, I don't know what our relationship was with him in general. Probably we didn't appreciate him enough to begin with. But, you know, it was just this topic of conversation that shouldn't have even, you know, it sucked that it had to be because it wasn't like we were paying him a hundred million dollars. Well, we did eventually, but um, paying him that much to come in and start, like he was a backup behind Donovan. And I think to start, he was a third string and it's just, but he was always so honest and candid about it. Exactly. As you said, like he didn't make excuses. He came out, he answered the people's questions and he was always open to talking about why what he did was wrong what he's trying to do to fix it he never shied away from it and as a fan that's what made me more okay with you know taking a step back and saying okay i need to give him a chance give him a second chance and hope that he's learned from his lessons so i can root for him and i can feel a certain way about that situation yeah a lot of people didn't have that that forgiveness in their heart like you because you know what what i would say to people the big thing is like hey look it was only a dog you know he didn't kill anybody he didn't rape anybody to which I would say to people like, okay, how many people do you know who've actually been murdered? How many people do you know who've been, you know, yep. uh, you know, an object of, of violent crime? All of us have pet a dog or a cat or something like that. Yep. So we can, that's where the connection really hit with a lot of people. But again, to see Mike's honesty and, you know, the introspection, which, you know, for a lot of people, prison can do. Yeah. I and mean, again, he lost a lot of money. He lost a lot of relationships. Um, and for him to be the way he is now, again, it, it, it's an amazing tale of redemption. A lot of it is because he finally was honest with himself and was honest with a lot of, pe- a lot of other people that he hadn't been honest with before. Yeah. And for anyone that wants to listen to that podcast episode with Steve and Mike Vick, um, the title of the podcast was Huddle and Flow. Um, and that was an awesome podcast. And there were a lot of great guests on that show. Um I got to listen to, I think the Sean Payton one was another one that I really loved. Um, one of my favorites. One, right? That that one was so good. And getting to, like, just understand him better. And like you said, like, bring this human element to it. It was kind of a little bit removed from football, but still getting this very human aspect, but still relating it to football and understanding how he develops players. And you had Jameis on and before he was named the starter this year. Um, so anyone that wants to listen, 
He has a lot of great guests. So that's the Huddle and Flow podcast. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was another big story you reported on was you had broke the Colin Kaepernick story. Um, And, you know, with, with big stories like that, I'm curious to know, like, what's going through your head when you realize this is a story I'm going to have to report on and I, I'm going to have to either go on air or write this up. What's kind of running through your head and knowing that this is going to end up being a big story? Well, I mean, the main thing is I, I, I've done some big stories before. So, you know, even though I had the, the big energy, mm-hmm. um, so to speak, knowing what was going to happen, you know, it was kind of like, you know, okay, I, I've been through this before. One was the Michael Vick stuff. I mean, yeah. that was, that was almost a year of just a million big stories, you know, and then when I covered the NBA, you know, Michael Jordan coming to, you know, run the Washington Wizards operation. When I was working in DC. Um, and, and so things like that. So, you know, in the moment it was like, you know, this is going to be not just a big sports store, you know, because I had seen, you know, when Chris Jackson, who changed his name to when he converted to Islam, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, when he refused to acknowledge the flag during the national anthem and the backlash that created when he played for the Denver Nuggets. And I was like, this is the NFL and this is a quarterback. Yeah. And, you know, people aren't expecting Colin Kaepernick. I mean, he, he'd never spoken out on issues like this before. And for him to take a stance like that and then to later say some of the things he said to me in our, in our one-on-one uh, interview, I was like, okay, this is going to be a big story. You know, I'm writing it in a room with all these great Niners uh, beat reporters like, oh, it's – it's going to be a tough morning for them, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, cause I have a lot of respect for them, but then I just knew how big this was going to be for like who I worked for. I mean, the first three letters of my network is NFL. Yeah. So they've never had anybody challenge them. And then the person he, he spoke to was kind of a mouthpiece for the actual league. And so, you know, I respect the NFL for saying, okay, this is what it is. We're not trying to like streamline this or soft play it in. If they tried to, I would have went ahead and got fired and just given the raw copy to everybody. But um, it's it was just one of those things where, like, you knew it was going to be big. I did not know it was going to have legs under it five or six years later. But again, you know, when this happened in 2016, yeah, the political climate was really divisive. I mean, that's when Hillary was running against Trump. That's when all of this happened. And that's really set the stage and, and continued now, because of the divisiveness of, of the politics in America then and where we stand now, which is further divided than we were back then. Yeah. Yeah. And then with that with that story, when you had noticed that he was, you know, not standing up for the anthem, what, like, when you learned, like, what he was going to try and do, like, has it, I like, I'm trying to say, like, has your view changed since then? Like, from when you learned that he was going to sit and not, like acknowledge the flag and the anthem has your view well, on what he has done changed. Yeah. Look, when I saw him doing that, remember there was still three and a half hours of football. Games yeah. Played, oh you know? man. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I had, I had, I had to kind of figure out like, is this what he's doing? But in the meantime, mm-hmm. I had three and a half hours, three and a half hours to prepare a ton of background just in case it was. Mm-hmm. So I was ready to yeah. rock and roll. I just had to get some, some, you know, a lead and some quotes from him. Bang, 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 push send. Yep. You know, this was a written story. Um, it, you know, I, w- I wasn't there with the camera. Um, so, you know, again, it was, it was like, okay, this is, this is what it is. But, you know, I, I think how it's changed things is the NFL initially said, okay, we have to listen to our fans and sponsors. So we're not going to let people, you know, if they kneel, they're going to face a little bit of backlash. I mean, as we saw, Colin Kaepernick hasn't worked since now the some of the guys like Eric Reed, he was out of work for a while. Um, you know, and, and, and Eli Harold, you know, some of those guys. So, but because Kaepernick was a quarterback, it was just really like, whoa. Not to mention, but, I mean, coming off of, was that the year after the Super Bowl? Or? It was a couple years after. That was okay, tw- yeah. the Super Bowl was like 2013, 2014 season. Yeah. So, so not far but it was, that. no, it was a far loop. Mm-hmm. But since then, now the league is like, look, with all the things that have happened in the country, what Cap was saying, continues to play out before our eyes. So let's be leaders on this um, instead of being reactive and worried about our economics. And that in itself, some people thought initially was going to hurt it, but it's actually helped the league in a lot of different ways because they're changing lives uh, for a lot of people through legislations, 
uh, things like that. See, in Massachusetts, you know, you had people like Robert Kraft and Dev McCourty yeah. and Quan Bolden, a lot of people get the age from when juveniles could be put into institutions. It used to be eight years old. Okay, at eight years old, you don't know if a kid may have a diagnosis like ADHD, something like that, with the proper treatment and medication. By the time he's nine or ten, could, could how to cope with his or her emotions and figure out. You know, the state could, was able to put them in institutions beforehand to say that's a bad kid, but because the NFL decided to step up and change lives and say it's thirteen years old, so by then, if a child's eight years old can be diagnosed and there's still issues at thirteen, okay, maybe they do need to go through a different, more judicious path. But these are the positive changes that the NFL has seen. You know, and the more positive changes and better. We can make people's lives the less of the BS we're going to have going on. So that's been the biggest change is the shift in the NFL stance and the fact that so many players took Cap's lead and want to get involved and in kind of taking the protest to action. Like the Players Coalition. I mean, I remember during sure. the 2017 season, I mean, Malcolm Jenkins, uh, you know, with the Eagles during that period of time, you know, he was very outspoken about it. And I remember, I think one day, like a Monday morning after a Sunday night game, him, Torrey Smith and one other Eagle like got up and like went to the Capitol at like four in the morning after a game to like talk uh, the state capital to talk about that kind of stuff. And it was just sure. it was incredible to see um, the work that they were putting in just because the NFL decided to support that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of good stuff is happening, especially again, legislatively, we're getting some, some, some laws changed. Um, you know, it's your guy, Meek Mill there in Philadelphia, you know, Robert yep. Kraft. Some of those guys were kind of instrumental in helping some of the probationary laws to, to help things there and, you know, doing things like so you don't have to have cash bail to get yeah. people out because that's prohibitive against a lot of people who don't have the cash, yeah. but they have a credit card. Right. So, you know, a lot of changes like that, a lot of positive, positive things that we don't think about, you know, because a lot of us aren't impacted by certain those certain cir- circumstances. Yeah. And I think another impact, too, is in a lot of the work that you've done um, with HBCUs and the relationship with the NFL and players that play at HBCUs and going on to the NFL. Um, and that's the same sort of thing, like advocating for these players and, and visibility and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And in 2020, we got to see the first HBCU combine. Um, so I'm curious, you know, you had spoken a lot about that on the air, but how you think that this benefits kind of players in in the long term at the college level on going to the NFL and and kind of getting this visibility? Well, you know, that's that's an interesting topic. Um, You know, look, when I first came out of high school, I went to University of Missouri to play football. Mm -hmm. So my my football playing stuff happened at a PWI, a predominantly white institution. Um, Things didn't work out. I wasn't very good and decided to transfer to Howard University in D.C. where I was going to um, play football. But then once I got there, I lost my stinger, right? I said, you know what? I, I said, let me just, let me just concentrate on academics. And so, um, I was at this historically black university, the most prestigious historically black university. And what it did for me, just as a man, in terms of, uh, shaping me, being in Washington, DC, you know, shaking me as a human being, I was like, wow, man. I mean, so many people, and they don't have to be black, but so many people have to, you know, need to go through this type of experience, to kind of find themselves. And, and so when I, when I picture my personal experience with some of these athletes, you know, we know historically back in the sixties and seventies, NFL dynasties are built off of players who went to HBCUs. I mean, the Pittsburgh Steelers, my God, I mean, half their defense went to historically yeah. black colleges as a John Stallworth, as did the scout Bill Nunn, who just went to the hall of fame, who, who scouted them and, and developed the, that connection. But over the last two years, we've seen one player from an HBCU drafted in the NFL. I mean, okay, you can make all the excuses you want, but you can't sit here and say that some of these guys don't deserve an opportunity. So by having an HBCU combine, and then this year as part of the Black College Football Hall of Fame, um, which I'm a part of, we're putting on the Legacy Bowl the week after the Super Bowl. That's like an HBCU Senior Bowl for a whole week of practices and then a big game which we broadcast on NFL Network where you can see some elite players. Now, the thing that hurt HBCUs last year in a lot of programs, especially on the smaller level, was COVID. Yep. Yeah. Right? A lot of schools only played, you know, they, a lot of schools didn't play any games at all, and some played five or six in the spring. Some only played two yep. in the spring. And then those players who participated in the spring were not draft eligible. 
So that was part of the craziness. But I think by constantly talking about it, now with Deion Sanders and Eddie George and Ty Wheatley um, coaching HBCUs, like ESPN is showing a black college game every week and highlights yeah. and scores. NFL Network, you know, we broadcast the Black College Football Hall of Fame Classic a couple weeks ago when Eddie George's Tennessee State Tigers lost to Grambling. Um, and so there you can see talent. And the big thing is basically not to let the NFL off the hook. You have no reason not to know who these guys are. And that's why I think, you know, the East-West Shrine Bowl, the Senior Bowl, things. everybody's getting involved now because they understand the injustices that have kind of happened that way too. So having awareness getting these guys into some of these all-star games, which has been a problem, you know, because there, there's players out there. I mean, Akil Glass, quarterback for Alabama A&M, he's, he's going to get some looks. Jermaine Martin, running back, North Carolina A&T, where Tariq Cohen went, he's going to get some looks. I mean, there's a DB at Florida A&M, big-time player. You know, you look at some of the best players in the league today, like Darius Leonard, linebacker for the Colts. He went to South Carolina State, historically black school. So, Having that conversation, it doesn't diminish what's going on at Ohio State and Michigan and Georgia and Alabama, but it just only enhances, right? It adds a little extra seasoning to the jambalaya to make it taste a little better. I think that's the perfect way to put it, right? Like it, like boosting up more people doesn't put other people down, right? It just gives this kind of equity to it rather than having some, you know, form of equality. It's, it's more equity that everyone's kind of on an even playing field, even visibility that you are not knocking anyone down by bringing more people up. Yeah. I mean, look, I haven't seen Georgia or Alabama or Florida state or anybody lose games because Mm -hmm. they're showing a Jackson state game. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You know, so, you know, that's all part of it. And their players are going to get the attention they need regardless of how many games are televised on ESPN or whatever. I mean, the scouts are going to be there no matter what. Yeah, but I tell you what, here's, well, no, scouts will not be there no matter what. That's, that's been a problem. You talk to some of the schools, some HBCUs, and they're like, yeah, scout came through here, but it was kind of more just saying that they checked the box instead of really studying a kid and talking to people to find out about a kid, you know, and, and, and I'm going to tell you this, you know, another thing about, you know, Dion and Eddie George and Tyrone Weekly coaching, and then getting this exposure. There are a ton of people who have no idea about historically black colleges. I grew up, like I said, in Minneapolis and then St. Louis. Okay. There's only one HBCU west of the Mississippi River. That's Lincoln University in Jefferson City, Missouri. Right. So when I'm getting recruited by all these schools, my mother's like, okay, well, how come none of these black schools are recruiting you? I was like, I they don't have the budget. I, I don't know. I, I I haven't gotten one letter from Groundling or this thing. I live in Los Angeles. Now, there are people who have no idea that a Jackson State or a Texas Southern exists. Mm-hmm. So by seeing these schools on television and them getting exposure, it's like, whoa. That's like me when I was young. See, I'm a lot older than you. I never knew about Georgetown University until I saw Patrick Ewing and all these great championship basketball teams at Georgetown. I was like, whoa. I love that school. I love, and you know, that that's just part of it. So again, just adding to the exposure, not only opens up the doors for potential um, student athletes, but also students as a whole, and maybe people who want to be educators too. Yeah. I, I mean, so speaking in terms of um, that exposure, uh, me personally, I, you know, I had heard the term before. I generally knew what an HBCU was, but I didn't really know much outside of Howard um, because I just wasn't really exposed to it, you know, growing up. It's not something that was often talked about. But um, recently, I don't know if you've ever seen the show All American. It's on the CW. Um, yeah. It's, so it centers around a player from uh, the Crenshaw area of Los Angeles. And they did an episode in this last season that was uh, it was called Homecoming. And it was specifically the whole episode was about HBCUs and educating the kids on this show um, about what they are, what they stand for. Um, and it specifically revolved around another um, player, a high school uh, baseball player who was looking to go directly into the MLB and then ended up committing to, I believe it was Howard University, instead of going to the MLB in, you know, in an effort to kind of bring more attention to HBCUs. And watching that episode was really interesting because, again, I didn't really know too much about it. And it caused me to do a lot of my own research. It caused me to just try and understand, I guess, more about uh, the environment and the culture behind it. Um, so 
do you think, you know, obviously seeing the games on ESPN, NFL Network, all that stuff is extremely important in getting scouts, holding the NFL accountable. Do you think that it's equally important to be able to see and learn those kind of things in pop culture, um, especially for like kids growing up and just maybe having a better understanding of this, you know, HBCUs even exist? Absolutely. Because, you know, look, if you watch the Blackout Football Hall of Fame game between Tennessee State and Grambling, what's the first thing you notice? Tennessee State's quarterback was white. So everyone's thinking like, oh, these HBCUs are only black students, right? And so, no, I was like, no. When I was at Howard, there were a ton of white students and Latino students and Indian students. and everything. It was an incredibly diverse campus. It was majority black, but that doesn't mean it was exclusively black. And so these were made, these schools were formed to educate, you know, freed slaves or, or blacks who were born free, but now they've completely evolved. And so I think that's another thing. You know, especially like when you see a lot of women's sports, like softball teams, these HBCUs are predominantly white. Yeah. So it's it's you know, it, it just shows people that, yeah, it's got this label of HBCU, but it's it's all inclusive. Right. Everybody can go there and, and get an education that's comparable to any school in the world. I mean, the vice president of the United States went to Howard University. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, again, that's that's what the exposure shows. And look, some kid who may be at a suburban white school may see the marching band you know, at Tennessee state or Morgan state and be like, I want to do that because they get down and that looks fun. So you're talking uh, to Michael's heart right now. I, I, I was in marching band in high school. I was a trumpet player, and there was a couple of them that would come around to like different competitions in the area when I was in high school and they would just kill it. I mean, they blew Chaney, everyone else Chaney, out of the water. Chaney's right there in Philadelphia, yeah. man. You yep. don't know about that. Yeah, Chaney's I do. Right there. Oh my God. Yeah. They were always, I mean, they just had so much fun. It was a ton of fun. And they just always put on a show. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, one of the quotes that I read from you recently about this topic was that part of this this growth and bridging the gap between, you know, recruitment with HBCUs from high school and, and creating this level playing field and making it last long until these players could go on and play in the NFL and, and get drafted the way they used to rather than just have one player from an HBCU. And the quote was that strengthening a diverse coaching and personnel development pipeline is important. So I'm curious, I, I really love the language used there, but I'm curious to see how you think something like that could happen and, and what steps to put in place to create that type of pipeline. Yeah, look, and this is a great program that the NFL has. It's called the Quarterback Coaching Summit. It's been going on for four years now where they get all of these great, you know, general managers, you know, Ozzie Newsome, Rick Spielman. One year, I, we know, when I emceed an event, we had uh, Marvin Lewis and Urban Meyer on panels. But these panels are mainly like a lot of the minority coaches, and not just black, again, diverse coaches of color from the NFL, but also from these HBCUs there for this two-day summit because, you know, they learn a lot of coaching techniques. You know, there was a great thing where Tony Elliott, the offensive coordinator at Clemson, was talking about the zone scheme run game, you know, in, inside the tackles. And then Mike Loxley, um, University of Maryland head coach, talking to, you know, former Alabama OC, the RPO run game outside the tackles. And he had another coach, Garrick McGee, um, who's now University of Florida, talking about protections and things like that. So they're – they're learning a lot, you know, on how, you know, football X's and O's. But in doing so, you've got a lot of these NFL coaches who are teaching them things. But here's the other thing. These NFL coaches are learning a ton from these black coaches because the NFL game now is really taking a lot of principles from the college game. Yep. And a lot of the major, you know, things that happened offensively in the NFL stemmed from black colleges because they had to be creative. You know, they weren't always getting the biggest guys yeah. and this and that. So they had to find ways to be creative to make defenses play disciplined football or to isolate their studs. Jerry Rice, we had him on our podcast last year, uh, Jim Trotter and I, he was talking about what they did at Mississippi Valley State. Three wide receivers to one side, him singled up to the other. That either forces teams to go into nickel coverage to double him, which opens up the run game, or they would single cover him because they had to play the three receivers on one side. He said, that is a common formation that's in the NFL now. And that's something they were doing 35 years ago at Mississippi Valley State, lighting it up. So, you know, that type of pipeline really helps us to some of these, you know, um, you know, the Bill Walsh, 
fellowship where they take a coach of black colleges and he gets to spend training camp, he or she, I should say, get to spend training camp with these NFL teams. That's a little tougher because the schedules conflict a little bit more. Yeah. But now they're finding ways, you know, to give opportunities, you know, not just for men, but for women. Look at all the women um, who I think there's 13 women now who are coaching in some form or fashion in the NFL that a lot of these programs that the NFL has put into place, I mean, they're really taking hold. And so that's an important thing, too. And it's always awesome to see, you know, head coaches speak out and be very vocal about that kind of stuff. Like Bruce Arians is always the first one that comes to mind for me, just because I, I feel like leading count, up. Count, count, if you can count, if you can count on two hands, the number of coaches who spoke out on it, I'll give you, I'll give you a nice cold beer through this computer screen. Oh, I definitely cannot. Um, it's there you probably, go. I mean, yeah, it's really, I mean, Bruce Arians is mostly the only one I could probably name. And it's just because I feel like he's talked about it so many times that his face went red. It's probably like that anyway, but, you know, like he's talking about how all his uh, coordinators, I believe, are black and he has a woman, I want to say on like every level of, uh, is there just, is there two? At least uh, there's two, if not three, but I know a strength coach, a D-line, assistant D-line coach. Yes. And man, I think he's got one more on his staff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, it's, I mean, it's always cool to hear him talk about that kind of stuff. And it does make me wish that other people would speak out about it more. Um, But also it it is nice to know that that's not something that happened even five years ago. You know, it's those people weren't being hired, let alone being, you know, praised and actively talked about and being, you know, the, the hiring process being challenged by a very successful head coach in the NFL and a longtime coach. Yeah, I mean, you got him, you got Sean Payton, John Harbaugh, yep. you know, a couple of guys who are really, you know, speaking out about it. But not only are they, are they, you know, the offshoot, you know, the real kind of impact it's making is now you're you're having women or other people of color say, I want to do that now, right? I might have a chance. The head coaching situation is still an absolute disgrace. Yeah. Yeah. And all they, all these owners do is talk about it. You know, they just talk about it. They're not they're not about it. They're not they're not really with it. Um, as proof is shown. They've hired a couple more, I think we've got five black general managers now. Yeah. Um, but still seeing some of these people of color and women have inspired people to say, you know, this this is a career I might try to do. And that's that's what it's really about is to trickle down to inspire people who are younger to continue to force the issue to force change. Because change is not ch- change is a, change is a, often not a voluntary thing. It's often something that's forced on people. Yeah, yeah. I have yep. to say yep. it because it's my alma mater that the there was news this week on a bunch of um, networks. I'm pretty sure NFL Network had it, um, ESPN Sports Center that the first girl in Long Island sports history scored a touchdown, and that's actually my, my where I went to high school. Um, and my brother is on that team currently. So that's great. Yeah. So I heard from him first and then I got to see it happen, you know, on the networks and on, on social media and stuff like that. But it's like, right. Like that, it creates this environment when people talk about it and, and they can see themselves. And I think that's a huge thing is representation, like visual representation that you can see coaches of, of all genders, of all colors and everything and coaches and assistants and, and general managers and, and players that you can see and visualize yourself that you say, okay, I'm only in high school, but I, I can go play football. I can go score a touchdown. And the entire team was nothing but supportive. Like my brother told me that they did nothing but celebrate her all night and, you know, cheer her on it and pile on top of her when she scored that touchdown. So like it creates this environment of like inclusivity and representation that people feel empowered to, to be able to do these things without having any, I mean, I'm sure people face like black, what word am I trying to say? Like backlash, backlash. Oh, I was backwards. Why was my words backwards? But backlash. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But seriously, (laughs) but face backlash. Um, but, but it starts slow. And, and even something like that at the high school level that you have a female player that, that makes history creates more. And the entire town knows about it. So now there are more girls out there who say, maybe I can do that. I believe the yeah, Jets wanted her too. Yes. I, I, I think they did. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But even like Carl Nassib, the defensive end of the Raiders, you know, who's gay yep. and he came out and yep. spoke about it. He felt comfortable enough yep. to do it. Have you heard anybody even really talking about it? Like, okay. Yeah. No. Yeah, like okay, he's good. He's a good ball player. He punched out the, the ball from Lamar Jackson in week one to kind of 
give the Raiders a chance to yeah. seal the deal. You know, and it wasn't like, oh, that was that gay dude. That was like, that was a great play. So that's going to make yeah. people, again, feel more and more comfortable being, you know, in their own skin. And the younger generation, because they've grown up with so much more of this conversation, is just they're more accepting of it because it's it's not like taboo to them. That's just how everything is. Yeah, I have that conversation, I feel like, a lot with my parents and, you know, my friends' parents where, like, there's just certain conversations that our generation are, like, even, you know, I, I say my generation, but, like, people my age, 25 compared to even my sister that's four years younger, like, she's so much more comfortable with certain things that not necessarily that I'm uncomfortable with, but she's they're much more normal to her. Like, when I was in high school, I believe there was one person that was openly bisexual, and that was it. Um, and now with my sister, like she graduated with everyone all over the spectrum. And like, that's awesome because those people are like, they, they grew feeling more okay with those conversations happening. And, you know, I, I feel like exactly what you said, where as generations go on, all it takes is one or two people to kind of say that, Hey, it's okay that we talk about this. There's always going to be people that are just kind of garbage human beings that are going to come out against it and be just awful about it. But the majority often shows that they're going to be more like Ashley's alma mater, where the whole team was supportive. And it's not often how it's portrayed on like, you know, uh, random TV shows from 10 years ago where, you know, they have a storyline and everyone's getting bullied or something like, yeah, some people suck. But a lot of the time, all it takes is one person to speak out for other people to feel comfortable with supporting it and speaking out about it sometimes. Well, 100%. And again, I think, look, there's a great book I've got behind me by Dave Zirin called The Kaepernick Effect. And it's not about what Colin Kaepernick did. It's, it's the aftermath of it, how yeah. people feel more comfortable speaking out on certain issues. And I think, again, all this kind of goes back to Cap because until he really challenged the system, everybody was wanted to play it safe. And now that people are like, friggin'. Let's let's speak up and see who wants to, to buck up or who wants to be down with the cause or whatever cause it is. And again, I think that's that's part of the effect that we're seeing that started with cap in 2016. Yeah. yeah and I think it trickles down to at all levels, right, that these players are like more open and vocal and, and individualized, that they can fight for themselves at all levels, that they're fighting for contracts that they think they deserve, that they're fighting um, to be better represented, that they're fighting to be able to have like activism and football. And I think that that it trickles down from cap too, is that uh, you have the freedom. You're an individual. Like you're not just uh, in this system, like you are a player and you're a person still. And it trickles down to these players having like uh, almost individual rights to be still a person and not just a player. But don't stand over somebody after you make a big hit. Yeah. Big hit with a oh. 15 yeah. yard taunting oh no, it was so bad this weekend. So bad. Uh, can you imagine like Chad Ochocinco and Steve Smith playing this weekend? Like, I, I mean, obviously they didn't do as much taunting as much insane celebrations, but even still, I just, I, I, I can't imagine what the league would find them on a weekly basis. Oh. It's, it's it's a little much. Hopefully uh, it curtails because I, I haven't really seen any people do anything so egregious that yeah. deserved a flag. No. And that's why no. I said you work your whole life for this moment. Like you should be able to celebrate as long as it's not harming anyone or you're like not in someone's face. You know what I mean? Like I think there, there are lines to it that it, that's understandable. If you're getting in someone's face and you're yelling at it, helmet to helmet at someone or you're being openly disrespectful. I understand that. But like a little bit of like a celebration or pumping up the crowd after you make a sack is shouldn't be taunting. Like that is who, something that you worked your whole life for. Who thought it was an issue? Like nobody. Who, I mean, there Not was no fan. discussion. <laughs> there was no discussion about this. They're like, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna really enforce taunting. What? Really? It, like you yeah. haven't already? Uh, like, yeah, because it's not like we're coming off of like uh, the um, the whole like the catch rule of uh, like Megatron or Des Bryant or whatever. Right, Des Bryant. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, like there wasn't one specific thing that you know led this conversation in the offseason. It felt like it came out of nowhere, which is yeah, yes, it did. Bizarre, yes, it did bizarre. It reminds me of when they stopped uh, like celebrations after touchdowns, and then it came back the year after that they were allowed to do that. It, I think it lasted one season. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of that. That I hope I hope it stops before the season's over. That like this kind of slows down. That maybe we were trying out taunting this weekend and and seeing how that felt. But it reminds me a lot of that. That I hope that by next year it's really something that is very very rarely called. 
Yeah, it makes it makes the league look like a bunch of crotchety old yeah. folks. The old nickname's coming back. The old yeah. nickname of yeah, of No Fun league. league is coming back, yeah. and that, yeah. it's sad because this league is so fun. It is so fun, and I love to see it. it. Didn't like, have, yeah, you didn't have fans last year and everything, and now yeah. you're just kind of. But okay, we digress. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, I guess uh, you know the NFL and and regular football and stuff. Um, you know, this offseason was kind of insane, or at least it felt like yeah. it. It felt like there was the most movement in the offseason that we've seen, especially at the quarterback position since, like, I guess the year that Peyton went to the Broncos, maybe. You know, and even then, it was really just Peyton. But guys like Matt Stafford, Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, and guys like Jalen Hurts taking over, um, along with, like, big head coach, big names becoming head coaches, like Urban Meyer. Um of all the things that happened this offseason, you know, through two weeks of football, obviously, it's too soon to, you know, make any hard and fast judgments about it. But which do you think of, of all this movement you think is going to have the most lasting impact in the league or maybe just through this season? Ooh. I know it's a hard See, one. I, yeah, I mean, look, look, there's not, it's not like Tom Brady going to the Bucks last year winning the Super Bowl. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but, you know, I think the fact that Aaron Rodgers kind of positioned himself as to where this is his last season in Green Bay. Right. So they got this is kind of the go for broke and then he's out. You know, that's that's gonna be a circumstance. The fact that the Niners basically told Jimmy G, this is your last season as quarterback, because we're getting you out of here. So, yeah. you know, those those are very odd dynamics, you know, to work around and work through. I think with Rogers is probably a little more palpable because he's had such a long stint there and it just hasn't happened except for once. Yeah. Um, with Jimmy G to draft Trey Lance, you know, for him, he's got it. I don't think he's looking over his shoulder, but he's kind of like, you know, this is, this is kind of funky here. You know, yeah. we're going to, I'm going to finesse this. You know, fortunately Jimmy G is just, you know, one of the most incredible human beings and can, and can handle something like that until, until he doesn't. Yeah. Um, but the Niners had to protect themselves as well. Cause he's always hurt. So, you know, I, I think those are some of the things you talk about some of the moves that are made. I think the Rams giving up what they gave up to get to Stafford, to, to get Stafford, one, it's made them better in the short term. Yeah. The Rams have shown they, they don't give a damn about first round draft oh picks. My. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, what, where is it? Where is it failed? I mean, I got, that's yet. what's so frustrating even. <laughs> it's it's like it's like testing what I feel like I've been taught my whole life. It's like, oh yeah, you draft well, you build your team. It's like, no, we're barely going to draft. And when we do, it's either going to be a wide receiver or running back. Okay, yeah. sure. But but look, they're one, of the, they're one of the they're one of the best mm-hmm. teams in the NFL. Yep. At poaching at poaching players off of practice squads and developing yeah. developing them, nailing it in the second, third, fourth, and fifth round picks, nailing it. Yeah. And winning in free agency. Jalen Ramsey, Leonard mm-hmm. Floyd in Chicago. Leonard Floyd was just a dude. He was like the third or fourth leading sack artist yeah. in the NFL next year, playing next to Aaron Donald. Yeah. So. I mean, we'll see. I mean, my old thing is, can Detroit use all those picks and turn it around? I mean, that's they've looked better than I thought they would this year. I will say that. Yeah. I mean, I'll give I'll give Dan Campbell and Jared Goff credit for that. We're we're two games in, man. Yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll yeah. see. It's a long it's a long season. Either going to get better. I mean, they got a good staff. Either they're going to get better. Or it's it's not going to go well. Yeah. But I mean, I think those are some of the things you look at. Some of the movement, you know, Carson Wentz. I thought he was playing really well against the Rams the other day before he got hurt. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Two twisted ankles. It's good to know it wasn't Philadelphia. That just, it makes and, me and one of them, and one of them, and one of them is on a foot that he had surgery on that kept him yep. for five weeks. So, yep. Yep. yeah, that's and a little bit more. one of them's high and one of them's low. So there are two different types of ankle sprains. So you have to train oh, yeah. that. You have to like rehab those differently. There goes the Eagles fan. Like, here we go again. <laughs> just again. like, why I'm so like I I love Carson Wentz. I was a huge Carson Wentz fan. I still am. It, uh, it's it makes me feel so good that it's not happening in Philadelphia because now it's like okay, we're not cursed, except for all the other things. <laughs> it's just Carson that's cursed. It, it's just that's like yeah, all. like I will cheer for you. I will hope it gets better, and I will just be thankful that. It wasn't, you know, if he went there and immediately won a Super Bowl, that would have been the most Philadelphia thing of all time. Like, stayed healthy, won MVP. Like, it just would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. It's about what you'd expect. Yeah, but I tell you what, though, the Colts, they didn't protect themselves. No. Right? Now they got Jacob Eason behind him. 
I mean, they like him. They want to develop him. But this is a team that everyone thought was going to, you know, ready to go to the Super Bowl. And they, they're built. They're built to make that type of run. Yeah. So if I were them, I wouldn't rush Carson back, and I would make sure he's healthy. So by the time you get those final 13 games in, he's ready to rock and roll. Yeah, you got to really hope that they can survive a few games without him. And you got a brutal schedule, man. Brutal schedule. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, at least the division seems not great at the moment. I mean, I guess you have two. Uh, no, Tennessee. Team, Tennessee. The other, yeah. the other yes, teams. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think there'll be a market correction on the Texans and yeah, the Jags. So. It's yeah. not going well down there in Jacksonville. Yeah. How, it's early. It's early. How do you think Urban Meyer is adjusting to the NFL? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> growing pains. I will say yeah. it's growing pains. Growing pains. I've seen college coaches do this before. I mean, I covered mm-hmm. Bobby Petrino in uh, in Atlanta. Um, and it's look, some of the, some of the stuff that they're used to doing, you know, talking to players a certain way, things like that. It does not work in the NFL because these guys will tell you about yourself. You know, these are grown men trying to put food on their family's table, and you try to yes. talk to them like they're a dog. They're going to bark. They're not. They're not going to have it. So, um, look, he's got a young team. Urban does not like losing at anything. And the fact that he's struggling, uh, you know, there's some stresses that are that are going along with it. And so he's he's got to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. This was not going to be a good team this season. He's got to understand you can't just go into an Ohio State or go into yep. Utah or go into Florida and win right away because you got better players than everybody. Everybody's really good in the NFL in terms of talent. Yep. But some teams are better with talent more stable with what they've done. This is a whole new regime there. Again, you got to step back and look at the bigger picture because if he thinks he can win in the short term, you know, it's, 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 it's going to continue to be incredibly stressful for him. Duncan and I actually talked about that uh, on a couple episodes about tempering expectations, right? Like having, like we had talked about it in terms of fans and a little bit in terms of coaches and players too, that it's like, you know, you're, you came into a team that was the worst team in the league last year. Um, and you, there were expectations of, we got Trevor Lawrence and now we're going to go to the playoffs and the Super Bowl. Like you have to kind of temper those expectations. And I think that applies to the coaching and the playing level as well. Right. Like being able to understand that this is a rebuild. We're kind of changing everything here. We're changing the way we coach. We're changing the culture of this organization. We're changing so many players that you kind of have to, temper these expectations and not jump into it saying we're winning right now because it really harms yourself in the long run. Yeah. Everybody's got to be on the same page with that though. Yeah. That's in the GM, not, the not owner, the deal. owner. Yeah. The owner, especially the GM and the head coach. Cause one, you cannot ever be comfortable with losing a ball game and saying, hey, we're going to get better over time. Yeah. Right. Cause in that mean, that goes to show you you're kind of a quitter. Like you're not, you're not there for your guys. You're not fighting with your guys. And I think that's what urban is going through. Right. He wants he's going into win every as a player, especially at that level. Again, you are it's like all of us going to our jobs. Yes. This is your occupation to feed yep. your family. Right. And it's and this one is finite. By the time you're 31, 32, it's probably going to be finished. And you have to find a different occupation where most of us don't have to go through that. Yeah. So, you know, these dudes, no matter how poorly this team is constructed, they're laying their bodies and everything on the line. They're competitors. This is all they know. It sucks losing. But players, you know, players never tank. I mean, that's that's yeah. BS. Players do not tank. And so, you know, look, you you have to you have to say to yourself, yeah, you know, we can't win them all. But I mean, I think that's the hard part for some people how they compartmentalize how they deal with losing. And if you lose, like somebody just stomped on your pet, and you're, you know, you're like this all the time, that's going to reflect to your team. Yeah. And then when you win, it's like you won the Super Bowl. That's going to reflect on your team. I covered some NBA teams like that where every victory was like, that's the greatest thing ever. And every loss was like, oh, my gosh, that was a catastrophe. And so mood swings in the moments of games like this, there started to be some negativity. Everybody would, you know, hang their heads. Or if there was something that was real positive, they would get, you know, real excited at a point of the game where they needed more stability. Yeah. So that's what that's what shows up. You know, look, I've, I've got faith in Urban, but it's just a matter of if he's got the patience to go through this. You know, that's that's a tough thing. He has not had to deal with anything like this before. And he's he's got to ask himself if he's built for it. 
Yeah. And the way you're talking about losing too, is like, right. Like that, that affects Trevor too. The first week one was the first time Trevor Lawrence won a regular season game. Lost. So that, that comes with the territory of having to understand yourself in these losses. So it's urban, but it, it, it's Trevor. It's the rest of the players too. And understanding how to deal with this as a team with, with new coaching, with new quarterbacks and, and losing in the regular season for the first time ever in an opener. It's not like it was, you had played the entire season and you lost the last regular season game. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how they develop. Um, especially with urban urban's very unique. So being able to see this come into the NFL with, you know, what has been touted as a generational talent in Trevor Lawrence and being able to see how both of them adjust and if they're both going to adjust together, or if at some point they're going to have to separate in order to adjust individually. That's why you know different organizations can do something like this. Cause they usually have a good culture, right? You hear about yep. culture, culture, culture. If you had a culture like the lions, which has been so negative because they've lost forever Losing in the negativity seems normal, right? But winning, how do you handle that, right? How do you how do you kind of break the expectation? How do you change what's going on? And that again, that's why some organizations can figure it out. I mean, when you go when when players go to Baltimore, they know the expectation already is significant. When they go to New England, you know, when they come to the Rams, they know the player accountability is there. But you go to a team like Jacksonville, which is a bunch of young guys, mm-hmm. right, who haven't been together before. It's like, okay, we're, we're taking our cues from our coach. Yeah. You know, so is, is that culture leading the way properly for everyone to say, okay, we're riding with these guys. You know, it's a tough time. We're, we're down with what's going on here because they believe in us. They believe in themselves, and they're all on the same page. Yeah, it's it's extremely interesting. I'm I'm fa- I'm just honestly fascinated to see how it's going to turn out. I mean, it, it feels like it could just blow up at any moment with the way things are being reported. Um, you know, obviously, I hope for the best in everyone in that situation. I mean, I I love James Robinson. I'm a huge fan of him. I watched so much Trevor Lawrence in college, um, but it just it seems like it could be untenable very quickly, which is a scary thought. It can happen. It can happen. I'm telling you, I went through it that year with Bobby Petrino where after two or three weeks, you could tell he hated his existence being in the NFL. I mean, it reminds me a lot of the last year of uh, Chip Kelly in Philadelphia. Um, Not so much in him hating his life, but everyone else around him hating (laughs) him. So, um, yeah, I love it here. Yeah, well, Steve, we are getting close to the end of the hour, and we had a couple of, like, little – Fun questions. And one thing I really wanted to ask you is of all the football legends throughout time, anybody involved with football ever, any period of time, who would you most like to have sat down for an interview with to be able to interview them? Wow, that's a fantastic question. One one I've interviewed a couple of times and I just love him is Troy Polamalu because yeah. you know he he will tell you, you know, I see the world through a different prism. And he's so introspective and like so deep when he says stuff, you're like, wow, this is real mystic and real heavy. Um, but when he always, he always brings it back to this incredible center, um, you know, Alan page, the hall of fame defensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings who went on to become uh, you know, court justice, very, you know, really intriguing, deep, you know, just kind of his journey, you know, a guy who grew up in Canton, Ohio, and all of a sudden becomes a Supreme court judge after, you know, for the state of Minnesota after he finishes playing, you know, and then, then some of the old, some of the old legends like Fritz Pollard and some of these old, um, some of these black players had to go through like back in the twenties and, and thirties, you know, I, I just kind of love to hear about them now, but keeping ourselves in this time frame, yeah, to kind of see, you know, what the difference is like, you know, 80, 90 years later. Yeah, that's incredible. That's yeah. I can um, only imagine like having the, like the resources now to be able to talk to people from back then like that, like everything, you know, we, we hear the story of like Jackie Robinson and everything like that, but being able to hear, we, we haven't really heard many of those stories from, from the NFL, I feel like. And, and if they are, they're kind of not as, as well known and, and tabloids and movies and stuff like this. So I think that that would, that one I think would intrigue me the most. Football wasn't, football wasn't big back then. I mean, back then the big sports were baseball, horse racing and boxing. Yeah. Such an interesting collection of sports. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just all very, very different. Um, mm-hmm. Out of the people you have interviewed, uh, other than Troy Palomalo, I guess, who's your 
favorite interview, which I guess you can take the word favorite however you'd like. Most interesting, <laughs> most surprising, maybe. I don't know. However you. So want my favorite, my, so like the interview where I just knew I never knew what I was going to get, but it was always going to be good was Gilbert Arenas when I covered the NBA. Okay. Gilbert was a wild, Gilbert was a different cat. I love him. Um, he always he always gave me uh, something really good. Um, Alonzo Mourning, I really like talking to him when I cover the NBA as well. Um, you know, football wise, you know, my guy Steve Smith, agent eighty nine. You know, he 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 was really good, and you know, and Colin Kaepernick, man, the dude is like super smart, super heavy. You know, I'd love to catch up with him now, but I'm sure we're gonna, you know, hear what he has to say to his new uh, his new television series. That's gonna I know. Out on Netflix. I'm so yeah. excited for that. I actually didn't yeah. know they were making it until you had retweeted something about it, and I I yeah. for some reason didn't know about it, and I was able to watch the trailer and a couple of interviews about it, and I'm so excited for that. And I actually ordered that book this week because of that show. I ordered the Kaepernick Effect uh, book this week. Oh, I'm sure, Dave's Iron would be happy about that. Yeah. Um, and then also, I, I, we want to talk a little, just a little bit about, you know, the best advice for for somebody looking to make it into sports journalism or sports media. Um, a lot of our listeners, you know, that that's a, a passion of theirs and something they would love to see themselves doing in the future. Um, so, you know, any advice you have on, on how to make those connections and kind of start doing what you, you can do now to be able to create a, a career out of it in the future? And how would I get you? Yeah, job, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting, you know, because my son, you know, he's he's 25 and he's applying for jobs. And one of the things that's that's so important, because um, normally I'd be like, oh, okay, you know, know how to write, know how to do this mm-hmm. and that. But what he's finding out is know how to be digital savvy in terms of handling stuff like this, right? Podcast, web page, a lot of different things with design on web pages because everything is going you know, to your phone, to your tablet, to your things like this. And so besides learning how to be a good writer or, you know, cause I would tell anyone always your baseline is to learn how to write. Right. Because when you learn how to write, you learn how to tell stories with, you know, without having images, right. You've got to color a canvas with words. And so that really enhances your vocabulary. It really enhances your, how you ask questions, um, so you can shape a story so people can actually visualize and put themselves into a certain situation if they have to. Um, but also be very digitally savvy. So when people say, well, okay, you're not only doing this, but we need you to work on our webpage and do this and that. Social media. I, social media. I mean, I, I think that's, that's awfully important. Even if you only take one or two classes at a JC, like if you're, if you're already out of school, but you're not that savvy on the digital side, take a class at a community college nearby so you can understand how to do graphics or things like that because that's very, very important. That's good. Yeah, I think, yeah, because like, yeah, I think about it, like I, I look at, I look at the job postings on um, the NFL's website and other um, sports organizations website and cl- specifically for clubs too. And that's what you see that more than anything. Like you'll see a couple yeah. of like data analysts here and there, you know, having to be able to operate cameras, like going to school for, for audio engineering, like Michael did, but there are so many of them that are, you know, digital running social medias, running websites, stuff like that, that there, there are probably three to one in jobs that you could know from just being on the internet um, yep. versus like skilled position. Like every position needs skill, but like the skilled positions you went to school for. And you've got to be able to cross over. You yep. can't, yes. It's not, there, there are no singular media mainstreams anymore. Yeah. 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 I mean, I went to school for music and I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily doing a lot with it at the moment, but I learned audio engineering and yeah. it felt like every person that came in and talked to us, they were like, you just need to learn everything about everything. You need mm-hmm. to have multiple streams of income and you need to do a little bit of all of this stuff because mm-hmm. you never know what you're going to need, but you're probably going to need all of it. And it just, yeah, that's 100%. it's just funny how that happens. Yeah. You got to be yeah. nimble. And like, look, he's using it now, you know, like, like I could never, like I could do a lot of, we, I run the social media and stuff, but he's the one who figures out how to upload it to our platforms. Cause I couldn't do that, but you learned that at school. So being able to have that crossover between like passion projects and what you went to school for and being able to be on the internet is I, like you said, I think that's, that's very important. Okay. But Michael, show me something and drop the T-Pain 
live audio <laughs> box on her voice while she just do just do a whole show and yeah. like <laughs> when this goes out to all the podcasts, that's what she's gonna sound like. Yeah, you and me will sound fine, but Ashley is just gonna be T Pain auto tuned all the way through. <laughs> there you go. And no one's gonna have any clue why until they get yeah. to this part. So <laughs> hopefully they listen to the whole thing. <laughs> But I'm not all that concerned. I love it. I love it. And then, see, one one last one, I guess, is, you know, we're only week two in the season. Is there anything you're really, really looking forward to that for the rest of so many weeks we have left, to, you know, what you're looking forward to the most? Yeah, you know, I'm looking to see if Tennessee can kind of build on that second half they had against Seattle and yeah. realize their identity is running the ball. Mm-hmm. And you know, if they, they can figure out things well. defensively. Yeah, you know, it worked. You know, it's a really a good bit. team at home. You know, <laughs> you know I, so I want to see if Tennessee is going to get get back and do it, but if they can fix their defense, and it also conversely, is can Seattle fix its defense? I'm kind of like, man, come on, you can't. Yeah, you got some players on the side of the ball. You got to be yep. a little bit better than that. Um, you know, I, Justin Fields, of course, how he's going to fare now mm-hmm. that he's a starter at Chicago because I do not think Andy Dalton is going to get an opportunity again. Yeah. Um, I think this is Justin well, Fields' job to lose. Matt Nagy and Andy Dalton is still the QB1 <laughs> when healthy. Well, then, then he came out today and declared Justin Fields a starter. So yeah. I saw a tweet today that was like, the they go on to win the Super Bowl. Justin Fields wins the Super Bowl for them. Matt Nagy comes out for the end of game interview and says, Andy Dalton is still our QB1. <laughs> yeah, he's still QB1. Yeah, yeah. I decided to give the uh, Super Bowl MVP to Andy. To Andy. QB1, so. Right, and then uh, yeah. Matt Nagy will be coaching elsewhere next year. He'll be coaching yeah. the USD. <laughs> <laughs> oh my lord. Oh, that oh, would be God. something. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate having you on. Do you want to just give everyone a quick rundown what shows you're on, what times we can find you on NFL Network, oh, and where to follow you? I, I, can't, I can't give you specific <laughs> time because I'm on all kinds of different times. This weekend, you can find me <laughs> on NFL Game Day morning from SoFi Stadium for the Bucks Rams game. It's going to be a dope game. Okay. Um, but otherwise, Twitter and IG at Weich, W Y C H E, 89. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. So thank you so much. You guys are great, man. You guys are awesome. That was fun. That was, <laughs> that was different, man. I, yeah. that, 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 I love how you guys kind of, you know, you didn't stick to the same formula. And that's what's going to make you guys really good and attractive because you guys are talking about things you want to talk about, not just what everyone else is talking about. Well, we really appreciate that. And we really appreciate you taking the time. I know it came out of the blue, but it was, it, I'm so happy we got to have you here. I cannot wait to hear. The T Pain version. He, yeah, so oh, you, you have to put it I on somewhere. <laughs> oh, it'll it'll go somewhere. I mean, I'm not kidding. It'll take me a couple minutes, but it'll go somewhere. I <laughs> uh, even just to Steve's inbox, like that. That's yeah. fine. Perfect. Um, you know, maybe no one else has to hear it, but we'll oh no, 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 no! You got to share, brother. You got to you got to uh, make this. You got to make it happen. Well, just just like a sentence, just a question. I'll yeah, put it on exactly. the Unbroppables YouTube page. Yeah, and again, everyone will be confused, but yeah. It's fun. If you want to hear me on T-Pain with, with the T-Pain auto-tune, you can catch the Undroppables playbook anywhere you listen to your podcast, Spotify, Google, Apple Music. I make sure to tune in with us live every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to talk all things football, a little bit of fantasy, a lot of bit of everything. Um, and thanks for joining us. 